This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The first public appearance by Ontario's new long-term care minister and Rod Phillips's apology for his government's failure in its pandemic response to the crisis in nursing homes were discussed by Libby and a panel of advocates and stakeholders, including Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, Kathy Parks, whose father passed away at Orchard Villa, lawyer Jane Medes at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I have to say I was really encouraged by the outreach. Uh, certainly uh, uh, expressed similar sentiments that he expressed yesterday in terms of his commitment to uh, turn the, the clock on this and move forward and take the necessary actions to fix the system and, and to work with his stakeholders on this. So uh, really encouraged by that immediate outreach. Uh, Jane, he didn't call you, did he? No, he didn't call me, and I have never spoken to uh, Marilyn Fullerton either. Uh huh. What, what do you make of the apology? Was that good enough? Well, I mean, it's a start. I think that we're certainly seeing a different attitude um, with this minister, which is a hugely good start. Um, you know, uh, I think you bring up some good points around you know, where was the issues? You know, I'm glad that they're taking responsibility. And, you know, moving forward, I'm really hoping that we can work with the ministry. Uh, if they're going to be doing, you know, new legislation and stuff. I think that's, you know, I'm not sure that it's necessary, but, you know, I think there are tweaks that can be done to the current legislation, definitely around the enforcement. But, you know, I think it's encouraging to move forward. We'll just have to see what actually happens. Um, yeah, tweaking the enforcement. Uh, Donna, do you think that the legislation needs to be changed, updated? Yeah, I, we we would say yes. Um, uh, one of the reasons uh, we, we struggled in the beginning of the pandemic was there were so many restrictions on how our employees could actually work and what they could do, what a nurse could do in a home. Uh, I think if we're going to uh, look at how long-term care fits, uh, within that broader continuum of care and living uh, from independence through the end of life and where we fit relative to, to hospitals and primary care. We do need to look at the legislation in that context. Uh, the, the minister also spoke about the need to look at how do we modernize our, our licensing and inspections and ensure that there is real accountability and uh, be very clear about uh, what the consequences will be of not uh, not meeting standards. So I, I would say we have a lot of work to do to modernize uh, and build out a system around the needs of the people we are here to serve uh, and uh, uh, so so we, we certainly do support uh, a revisiting of the legislation, but there are other actions too, including building out our human resources and, and redeveloping and re- renewing the sector. There, there is a lot of work that has to be done. Vivian, Rod Phillips' first call went to you, right? It sure did. That was an interesting day. <laughs> okay, and what, what did he have to say and how are you reacting to it? Hey, going from the last 15 months where, you know, I, I couldn't get a meeting with Mr. Fullerton to save my life, um, from, you know, going from that to receiving the first call post being sworn in was a very nice change. 
Um, don't get me wrong, you know, I, I still want to see action behind a nice gesture. So I really just had an opportunity to kind of say my piece and speak a lot about, you know, the things that I'm, I think are of most immediate importance to address. And one of those was thankfully, um, you know, during the press conference yesterday, uh, we now know about increased visitation coming. So that was very comforting. Um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Kathy Parks, uh, you yes. were listening in. Um, did his apology satisfy you? It did. Uh, I wish that it had come from the previous minister, um, but it was nice to have it acknowledged and an apology was nice. I've always said that's the first step and now there needs to be action. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I take it, Kathy, you think this is a good start. What action do you feel you need to see? Um, well, I agree with Vivian that allowing more visitation time, but for me, I'd really like to see accountability. Um, the homes that really have struggled and not improved since wave one do not, um, should not be allowed to renew their licenses. They should be punished. You know what I mean? Uh, punished in, in a way that if they don't pull up their socks, they should lose their license. And I think that needs to be more, more strict in all long-term care homes in Ontario. Kathy Parks, whose father passed away at Orchard Villa, lawyer Jane Medis at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. This is Uma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Western Canada was in the midst of an unprecedented extreme heat wave that included the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada, Experts are blaming a phenomenon called a heat dome. Environment Canada's senior climatologist David Phillips explained what that is to Libby, who then spoke with Toronto family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel about how we should stay safe in sweltering heat and humidity. Well, it's like taking the Rogers Centre and sticking it over a piece of geography that stretches from the Arctic Circle to uh, to Death Valley. Uh, just, uh, just a big, huge bubble or lid uh, and um, and what happens, Libby, inside that that dome um, is that the air sinks. It's a, it's a it's what we call a ridge, an upper upper ridge, and it sinks. It squeezes all the air below it, and it comes from where jet aircraft fly, so really high up in the atmosphere, and pushes right down to the surface. And so when it squeezes all that air, that air just jiggles and jaggles as air molecules just bump together, create heat, and that heat accumulates, and, and, and it just it stays put. It doesn't, there's no weather or winds to get in there to push it away. It just grows increasingly warm and stressful. Now, at the same time, some of that sun's energy that comes in and bakes the ground and warms the air, well, it sometimes can evaporate the water. And, but the problem is we're not see very much precipitation during the springtime there in western Canada, and as a result... All of that sort of solar heat is just, or solar energy is going to heat the air and doesn't cool the atmosphere by evaporation. So it's sort of a double whammy and, uh, and it's very slow motion, uh, type. You know, we get heat waves here in eastern Canada where the, like we are just in the last couple of days where the air from the Gulf of Mexico surges northward. It comes through heat and humidity and then eventually it moves off maybe three days. Uh, then some cool Canadian air comes back and turn off your air conditioning and life is great. But out there, that dome is like a bully. It's like a, like a sumo wrestler just standing there and, and defies kicking out. 
And now let's get some advice from Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. So, uh, you know, I know your office is in an area where there are a lot of high rises. Uh, Do you have patients who fit that description, seniors who live alone, maybe without air conditioning? It's super concerning. Our building, it's a medical building, if you can believe, had no air conditioning two days ago. None. And on the fifth floor where I am, it became extremely hot, you know, so, and here I am in the full PPE, as you can imagine. It wasn't pleasant. So the thing about it is, as the body tries to cool itself, as people understand, I mean, what happens? We sweat, and we can sweat a lot. And the sweat contains sodium. It contains a lot of sodium. That's why sweat tastes salty. But it also has things like potassium and calcium and magnesium. But what can happen if the body's not able to cool itself adequately, we can move to something called heat exhaustion. So we're sweating and sweating and sweating away, and the, the skin naturally is wet, it's clammy, the body's trying to cool itself, and our, our pulse can become a little faster, it can actually get a little weaker, and, and then we start getting certain symptoms. And those symptoms should not be ignored. Nausea, vomiting muscle cramps. So why do these things happen? They happen because we've sweat so much, we're dehydrated, or, you know, the electrolyte balance is off and muscles start cramping. Iris, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? I think the main thing is this. Sweat works to keep the body cool, but only to a certain extent. When the sweat either runs out or it's not adequate and the heat is so much, Watch out for the warning signs. Take them seriously. The nausea, the vomiting, the muscle cramps, which can be in the back, can be in the abdomen. The weakness that comes along with it. Those have to be taken as serious signs. Call for help. Make sure you connect with loved ones. Have them check in on you regularly. Toronto family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and David Phillips, senior climatologist for Environment Canada. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, an examination of Bill Cosby's surprising release from prison. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. The latest discovery of unmarked graves at the site of another residential school has left not only survivors and Indigenous people upset and angry, but Canadians in general, to the extent many called for the cancellation of Canada Day. To learn more, Libby was joined by Dr. Veldon Coburn, an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa and the Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies, and Bridget Dozak at Historica Canada. Well, today I'm wearing an orange shirt. And um, I'm taking time to reflect. I'm taking time to um, to read, to listen, and and really try to understand. Bridget, you know, Historica Canada is famous for those heritage minutes, which for a lot of people make up a lot of what they know about our history. What are you planning in order to, you know, uh, recognize this reckoning? Well, I think um, we have a lot of uh, content and different um, um, different content that people can go and look at um, on our website. For example, 
if you go to the Canadian Encyclopedia and you type in residential school, you will find an article that will explain residential schools and that will talk a little bit more about what happened, how did it happen, talk about the last um, residential school in uh, that closed in 1996, uh, and the one that was funded by the government, 97 for Corollier in, um, uh, in the Northern Territories. But... Um, I think I think the uh, I think what's important is that it's to have that content. It's to to be able to go and find more information about residential school, about Indigenous people, about our complex history, uh, about the good and the bad. And I think uh, I, I think by by looking at the type of content that's out there, I think that's a good way to start. Dr. Coburn, you know, uh, we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission five years ago, and Indigenous people tell us that the knowledge of these unmarked graves, they knew about this. What do you make of the fact that for most Canadians, it took this to open our eyes to this? Uh, well, I think there's something material and tangible about uh, about graves themselves that are a little bit more than just reading sort of you know, some documented truth. The um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission was done over a period of, you know, more than five years. The uh, apology as part of the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement came in 2008. And then the research and commission uh, started up and, and her testimony, but it, it, it happens without as much fanfare. And it doesn't shock the conscience nearly as much as a revelation of one sort of mass grave. So you and I, we had spoken uh, just over a month ago about Kamloops' discovery, and, and, and that was more of a mass disposal site for corpses, whereas these were, you know, the graves that came out of Calisus and and now at um, uh, in the Tanaka Nation. It, they seem to be a, a little bit more carefully cultivated, but uh, it's still shocking to people to understand that there's a mass grave. And, and um, I think that, I think that brings up imagery of um, places that we never thought would occur here. And I think I said back then was that we reserve ideas of mass corpse disposal sites as something that happens in war-torn regions, conflict-riddled um, parts of the world. And the, the most you know, shocking atrocities against humanity and history. Uh, and, and now we're starting to see that this happens on Canadian soil or has happened. Bridget, last word to you. Uh, I would just say, go, go learn about this. Go learn about residential schools, about our Indigenous people. Um, if you go to our Historica Canada website or even the Canadian Encyclopedia, um, just go, go see. We have the Chani Wenjak Heritage Minute where you can learn more about the uh, treatment of, uh, of this boy in residential school. Uh, we have timelines so that you can see that residential, uh, that uh, Indigenous people don't start in 1492 or 1867. So that's what I would say. Just go learn more about our Indigenous history, because it is Canadian history. Bridget Dozak at Historica Canada and Dr. Veldon Coburn, an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa and the Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Bill Cosby walked out of a prison a free man this week after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned his 
indecent assault conviction for drugging and sexually assaulting Toronto-born Andrea Constand, who's not only disappointed in the decision, but worried this may discourage others from seeking justice. For a discussion on the rationale behind the unexpected decision, Libby spoke with Toronto criminal defence lawyer Joseph Uberger. I think the process works here a little differently. So there's some differences uh, between Canada and the United States. So first of all, in the U.S., they have um, per-state statute of limitation, so with a, a 20-year limitation period. So if you don't bring an allegation within that period of time, it's statutorily barred. So that's one oddity in the United States that we don't have here. So if there's a historical allegation from even 30 or 40 years ago, nothing prevents that case from coming forward. In this particular instance, the complainant had decided to commence a civil action and seek damages for a sexual assault rather than pursue a criminal charge. And then the lawyer, having who is defending Cosby on the civil case, understood the liability of being deposed. And so there was an agreement reached by all parties with the U.S. prosecutor that they would give him immunity from prosecution if he were to agree to being deposed in the civil action. Civil action went forward, he gave evidence, and they reached a settlement which was sealed, all done. You fast forward a number of years, the Me Too movement comes out, a number of complaints, and it's starting to really boil over. And then the prosecutor at the time decides, we're not going to abide by that agreement, and we're going to prosecute. And that's exactly what they did. And the Court of Appeal in Pennsylvania said, no, we have to honor agreements, and the case should not have been brought forward, and therefore the conviction is overturned. And we do have in Canada agreements not often do we ever offer immunity in cases, but sometimes there are agreements. You can imagine the most infamous, which is the Carla Hamalka yeah. deal. But we have to honor those in law to have a system function. Because as, as you know, unappetizing it may be that Bill Cosby walks away in this case, we have to have a functional system where we can rely on the undertakings and word of prosecutors, and we cannot have that change um, when the political climate or the social climate changes. And uh, that's something which is very important because it can, in this case, it's, it's, you know, violence against women, which is important that we protect against, but it could be any other reason. So we have to be very careful about these basic principles. Uh, here's something I was a little confused about. I've heard conflicting reports. I heard one report saying that it was actually just a verbal agreement. And then I've uh, seen reports that said, no, it was a written agreement. I mean, presumably that makes some kind of difference. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, there's often that we have agreements with uh, Crown prosecutors that are verbal, and, and 95% of the time, I might not even think about putting it in writing because they're very honorable here, and nobody goes back on it. I cannot imagine in the United States, and I have experience with work in the U.S., everything is in writing. These agreements are detailed. So I would imagine there was something in writing. Um, it may have been not as formal as other types of agreements. But there was not a dispute on the facts that there was an agreement for immunity. So once you accept that as a premise, the appeal has a foundation in which to do their assessment and then render their decision. And here, presumably, it wouldn't have happened because uh, all those other women, and boy, there are so many of them, uh, they would would have been able to prosecute their cases because there wouldn't have been uh, a statute of limitations. Even Andrea Constance apparently was filed 12 days before her time ran out. 
Right. So in Canada, there is no limitation period. So if allegations come out and, and for whatever reason, a, a complainant did not want to disclose 20 years ago or whatever for, for many laudable and important reasons, these allegations would be prosecuted here. So many of those witnesses who came forward in the trial, uh, Bill Cosby, who talked about similar incidents, uh, their cases would have been prosecuted here in Canada, but they're statutorily barred in the United States. And that's a big significant difference between Canada and the U.S. What would you like to leave us with, Joseph? I think uh, twofold. One, in the Gomeshi case, this was the right decision for a number of reasons because we need a functional system we can trust. And those who are true victims of violence should feel comfortable to come forward with their allegations. They will be dealt with seriously and prosecuted seriously. Toronto criminal defense lawyer Joseph Newberger. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was in the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Clay from Ajax weighed in on the discovery of remains on the sites of former residential schools. This is another blade on our past, unfortunately. We're not a perfect country like everybody would like to think we are. Libby, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the probably one of the richest organizations in the world. As far as I'm concerned, they should be paying for the excavation and all the radiation treatments that they need to find these bodies and relocating them and that with their families. I mean, that's going to cost millions of dollars. On Canada Day, Sita and Mississauga reflected on the past injustices done to Indigenous people. Yes, we should celebrate Canada Day. Canada is our, our country. We should be proud to be Canadian because presently we are the ones who is making a difference, recognizing and making amendment for the past horrific acts towards the First Nation people and the children at residential school. Our hearts, hearts hate today, but we should be proud to be Canadian, uh, a country we call our home. The recommended renaming of Dundas Street, though, had the phones ringing, starting with Simone in Parkdale, who's opposed. I'm really incensed to this. I live just a block above Dundas, and uh, it's going to cost way too much money. And this is a, this is all uh, comes from the leftist uh, element in City Hall, and John Tory listens to them every time they say jumpy ass how high. This is going to cost way more, more money, 60 different names, and as the gentleman earlier said about the maps being changed, it's, it's crazy. And first of all, the largest number of blacks in Canada in the 60s, early 60s, was in Nova Scotia. You never had that many blacks, but they're all doing this because of the multicultural um, uh, aspect and people who have worse histories in their countries than ours. Ron in Guelph on the possible renaming of Dundas Street. Where does it stop? Um, let's go find some dirt on Sir George because I'm sure if we dig far enough, we'll find some dirt on him. How about Bathurst? Let's find some dirt on, uh, on Bathurst. If we dig far enough back in history, Libby, we can find some dirt on just about anybody. Look at uh, McDonald's. Uh, part of it is this whole thing. As we've had this conversation before. I'm in favor of educate, not eradicate. Um, as said, it's, you've got to look at the perspective. Did these people do more good than bad? 
and weigh it against that. Helen in Mississauga is also not in favor of renaming Dundas Street. I'm really saddened by all of this with people wanting to change names of streets. and It's all part of the history. Now, I was an immigrant. I came from Scotland in 1957, and I was raised in Toronto. And, you know, the thing was, Toronto was beautiful, and it was so mixed, multicultural, and I was raised with everyone, and we didn't care what you were. We didn't care anything. You know, people were happier. Everyone now is so angry. Joan in Niagara has a solution. I think with all this nonsense, we should just start giving all the streets numbers. (laughs) And in 50 years' time, they won't be able to complain about it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There are a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Wanda in Georgetown on Canada Day. I am truly sorry for all of these Indigenous burials children that have been found. I think that that is absolutely horrendous and not acceptable. Um, However, this is something that went on many, many years ago, and I wasn't responsible for it, and you weren't responsible for it, and I think it's part of our history that should be taught, and children should know about it and be educated about it. But I think we also have to move forward and celebrate the wonderful country that we live in. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackatzoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.